0: Imagine attending a wedding where the bride never showed up. Imagine attending a funeral where no one shed a tear and there was no eulogy either. Imagine going to a birthday party where no one knew whose birthday it was. Imagine showing up to a basketball court that didn't have basketball goals. Imagine showing up to the first day of school, and there were no desks and no teachers to be found. Now, some of you kids are hoping that actually happens. Principal Pruitt, on the other hand, would have some serious heartburn. Friends, imagine walking into a church building on a Sunday morning where the Bible was open, but only to the Bible verses that people felt comfortable with. Jesus was sparsely mentioned in the sermons, and thus the gospel was not clearly presented. It was, if anything, more assumed rather than boldly and unapologetically proclaimed. Being a good and moral person was certainly emphasized, but it was emphasized over being a sinner humbled by God's mercy in Christ. And the people there, well, they didn't really love one another. In fact, they did as they always did. They just showed up, stayed in their lane, did what pleased them. But truth be told, they were hateful, they were embittered, and they were cold towards one another. And the only love you observed in that church were people who only loved themselves. If you found yourself staring at a circumstance or a scenario like any one of these, what would you say? what would you do? What what would go through your mind? Well, if you're anything like me, you'd probably say to yourself, or maybe even out loud, what on earth is going on? Something's missing. There seems to be some confusion. There seems to be a glaring disconnect, a, a disconnect that is obvious to you and I, but from the appearance of things, does anyone else seem to see the same contradiction? Is anyone else experiencing this cognitive dissonance? Now, maybe you're listening to these examples from my sanctified imagination this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, those things would never happen, Blake. That's silly. The chances of things like that actually happening are very unlikely and extremely slim. Maybe so. But brothers and sisters, if we took a long, careful, unbiased, scripture-examined, eyewitness-confirming, an objective look at our lives, somewhere along the way, there would be a glaring disconnect with us. A disconnect between what we professed to believe about God and eternity and how we actually live with the brief time God has given us on earth a disconnect between the callings the responsibilities the roles and the re- and the requirements God has placed on our life including the way he's gifted us there seems to be a disconnect at times in our life with what he has done in us and given to us than what we actually do with the stewardship he's entrusted to us You might say we've also suffered more than once in our lifetime from this 18-inch heart disease. You know what the 18-inch heart disease is, right? The distance between our brains and our hearts. Our thoughts and our passions. Our prayers and the priorities. Our songs and our actual service. Our lips and our lives, what we preach and what we practice. Friends, they don't always line up, do they? what we know to be true in our minds and what we are experiencing in our hearts, far too often, beloved, there is a glaring disconnect with our Christianity. A glaring disconnect between looking like Jesus as we should and instead looking like the culture which we should not. Do you know what the culture is, biblically speaking? It's fallen humanity's settled opposition to Jesus. And friends, how often are our hearts, if they were exposed for us to see clearly, look and sound more like the culture that stands in opposition to Jesus than it does Jesus himself who is in submission to his Father. And friends, it's this type of disconnect that the book of Jonah began showing us last week and that God will be showing us again this morning. As we study Jonah's chapters three and four, we'll come to find out how it's gonna serve for us today, less like a painting we can admire from afar. Jonah chapters three and four actually draws us near to look at this story like a mirror, where we are forced, we are brought to this place where we cannot run or dodge any longer. And Jonah three and four will now show us a reflection of ourself, not just of our actions, but what might be going on in our hearts, and we don't even know it. It's a story that in some ways is the very testimony of every true Christian here. Somewhere along the way, in God's abundant mercy to us, he opens our eyes, not just to actions that are in disagreement with his will, but attitudes of our hearts, that are keeping us from doing the will of God and being what he's called us to be. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Jonah chapters 3 and 4. Jonah chapters 3 and 4. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 452. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. Jonah chapter 3. Last week, we began the first of a two-week sermon series in the brief minor prophet, the Old Testament book of Jonah. And together, we discovered two overarching themes from chapters 1 and 2. Point 1, which came from chapter 1, is be in awe of God's sovereign and persistent pursuit of sinful rebels. And point 2, which came from chapter 2, was be thankful for God's surprising and saving mercies towards sinful rebels. Friends, the irony of the book of Jonah is that the primary rebel in this real historical story was a prophet of God, a spokesman, an ambassador, a preacher, a prophet of God who was attempting to run from the omnipresent God, to hide from his God-ordained calling in his life to herald, to proclaim, to preach the message the Lord gave him to deliver. Jonah was an Israelite, he was the son of a man named Amittai, and God had called him to do what no other Israelite prophet had been called to do all throughout the Old Testament. That's why Jonah is a unique exception to the rule. All the prophets of the Old Testament, though they may have spoken of evil pagan nations like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, only Jonah was called to go to those nations, the rest of the Hebrew prophets were called to preach to God's wayward covenant people of Israel. Jonah was to do the exception as a foretaste of what the church will now do in the new covenant era. He was to go and tell a Gentile nation a prophetic warning that judgment was coming. What nation did God call him to go to, and what were those people like? Well, you can listen to last week's sermon to learn more in detail, but Jonah's missions trip orders from God uh, were to go to a hostile, uh, idol-worshiping, bloodthirsty, spiritually deceived, barbaric people living in the nation of Assyria. Specifically the Ninevites who made up of thousands and thousands of people, at least 120,000 or more. Uh, Jonah 4 verse 11 alludes to Syria was the most powerful and domineering empire at the time. It was an empire that would, within just a century of this prophecy, be used of God as an instrument of judgment on the northern tribes of Israel. And it was to those kinds of people and that kind of place God had called his servant to go to. His messenger, his ambassador, his prophet, Jonah was to go and tell them the Lord's message. But Jonah decided to do what we've all done in our lives, more often than we'd want to admit. Instead of immediate obedience, there was postponed obedience. And they got Jonah in a lot of mess. His willful disobedience led to self-inflicted suffering. Friends, anytime we know God's will and then suppress it and try to block it out of our minds, it's only going to hurt us in the long run. Running from a good God only leads to bad consequences. Jonah bolted in the opposite direction, did everything he could to try to avoid what God had called him to do. And so through a violent storm, God would stop him in his tracks. Through the fear and paranoia of pagan sailors searching, seeking, and then interrogating and grilling Jonah on, Who are you? Where are you from? And what on earth did you do as unbelievers picked up that one of God's prophets were running from God? And it's it's in these contexts where Jonah, he had to come clean. He fessed up. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, he told them who he was and what he was doing. And through the sailors throwing Jonah overboard, the storm and the sea was calmed. The sailors then feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to the one true God. And then just when Jonah thought he could just jump ship, swim away, perhaps even drown to death and not have to face the music on what God had called him to do, Jonah ended up swallowed alive and found in a temporary apartment in the belly of a smelly, dark and large fish. For three days and three nights in that smelly, miserable, lonely place, it was there that Jonah realized the futility of running from a good and sovereign God. He had realized firsthand, first experience here, the vanity of putting your trust and happiness in anything or anyone above the Lord our God. And we ended last week in Jonah chapter 2 with Jonah declaring what we have all declared at some point or another when God showed us the light in the face of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Jonah 2, verses 8 and 9. just want you to look back at last week how it ended. Jonah 2, verses 8 and 9. Those who repay, pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord, which brings us up to speed on where we left off last week. And just to prepare you, number one, we're going to read chapter four at the end of the sermon, similar to what we did chapter two last week. And for all the uh, avid note takers in the room, there is no structured outline in its normal fashion. You just need to pay attention and write things that stick in your heart. Please follow with me, Jonah chapter three, starting in verse one. This is God's word. Jonah 2, verse 10, if you want to draw it back just one verse, ended with this statement, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah's out of the fish, and he's back on level ground again. Where was this dry land? Most likely, Jonah had been vomited by Shamu or some other large fish, Back on the very land where he had set sail on that ship and paid a lot of money to get out of Dodge. Uh, Where was that land? Well, it was the port city of Joppa, chapter 1, verse 3. We're not told if the ship made it very far. The only thing we're told is that they were headed far west to Tarshish, whether that was Spain or North Africa. uh, It was at least 2,500 to 3,000 miles west of where he was supposed to be going. But the Lord stopped Jonah in his tracks by sending a very violent storm upon the sea. And friends, it wasn't Mother Nature that stopped his running. It was God Almighty who weather does his bidding. Jonah was now back on his feet, out of the depths of the sea, out of the smelly, dark, miserable single-room apartment in the belly of the fish. And now we begin to see a change in Jonah's actions. The text indicates that Jonah no longer is heading in the polar opposite direction from God's will anymore. The running, fleeing, swimming, hiding, and ghosting prophet is now for the very first time in this book beginning to obey his God. He's beginning to take the first step towards fulfilling the next step in the Lord's calling on his life. And thus the Lord graciously does what Jonah does not deserve. He shows Jonah mercy. He gives Jonah a second chance. Look at Jonah 3, verses 1 to 3a. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Beloved, God never promises to give us a second chance in this life. But sometimes he mercifully does. God never promises us to give us a second chance in this life. But sometimes... He mercifully does. Now, we must understand what the scriptures clearly do teach, that there are no second chances with God whatsoever after we die. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In other words, we either get right with God now, or it will be too late once we die. There are no second chances for salvation once we close these eyes and take our last breath. And friends, even at funerals, preachers do the people a disservice when they try to pray an unbeliever into heaven after they're gone. We can't do that. The Bible does not teach that. If they rejected Christ and God's revelation of himself through creation in our conscience— Once we die, we face judgment. That's why the Apostle Paul emphasizes on the nowness of turning to Christ today and not delay. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, "...working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain." For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. To my non-Christian friend, to students, kids, do not put off to tomorrow what you would regret forever in eternity. Turn to Jesus Christ today. Listen carefully to this morning's sermon. Respond to the Lord's command to come to him through repentance and faith. Find your rest, find your peace, find your righteousness in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, his son. It's only by faith alone in Christ alone that we can be made right with God. And we're only given that chance in this life. Brothers and sisters, we cannot boast ourselves, right? Even though we are Christians and our salvation is secure, we can't even boast that our plans will come to fruition tomorrow. Scripture is abundantly clear. We can't promise tomorrow or act as if it's certainly going to happen. Proverbs 27.1 says don't boast about it for you do not know what a day may bring. James makes this abundantly clear in his letter. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Friends, knowing the right answers to life's questions is not the same thing as making right decisions in our life. Let me say that again. Knowing the right answers, chapter, verse, philosophical answers, whatever. Knowing the right answers to life's questions is not the same as making the right decisions in our life. Knowing what we ought to do is not the same thing of actually doing it with a humble, willing, and whole heart. But if we're all honest, every day we're all tempted to act and live contrary to what we know is true. That's why we need God's power and wisdom daily to resist that hypocritical disconnect in our lives, that 18-inch heart disease with what we say is true and how we're living the life God gave us. That's why Jesus actually taught his disciples and instructs us of how to pray. Pray. He said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Wasn't it Jesus himself who denied himself for our benefit? When he willfully would drink the cup of God's wrath for sins he never committed, he put himself under judgment so that we would be spared. Friends, in order for us to not procrastinate doing God's will in our life, we are called to die to self and look to Jesus. We must die to looking to self and ask God to unite our hearts to fear his name. Ask God to help us consider others as more important, more of our priority than even us getting our way. Friends, God does not promise us second chances in this life. That's why we cannot presume upon God's mercies. If we're living in sin today or God has brought to our minds this morning, unfinished business, begrudging bitterness in our hearts or broken promises from the past that maybe we need to own up to and we need to try to make right if it's possible to do so, we don't need to push it off any longer. Friends, the Lord will continue to press on those sore spots in our life. Until so we actually pay attention to what he's trying to heal and transform in our life. You see, Jonah, he thought he was off the hook. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, peace out. And here it is the Lord's giving this rebellious prophet a second chance. The Lord would keep his thumb on a sore sod in Jonah's life. The Lord's not going to change his mind about what he has said in his word. He has called each one of us to seek him, to know him, and to come to him so that that sore spot that we want to suppress and avoid gets healed and whole again. Friends, delayed obedience is only going to lead to bad consequences and deeper regrets in the end. For Jonah, God had treated him better than his sins deserve. God mercifully gave Jonah a second chance. Friends, in what ways has God given you and I second chances? In our marriages, parenting our children with friendships, with service in his church. Think about all the second chances God has given us even when we've wasted, squandered his money, his resources, his possessions on things that would not satisfy anyway. We put those resources in our pockets and the Lord put holes in those pockets to show us that his kingdom should be our pleasure. His kingdom should be our priority. You see, in whatever ways God has shown us in his providence, he's given us second, third, fourth, hundreds of chances to repent, believe, and obey. Friends, think about the second chances God is bringing to your mind this morning that he has not given up on you. What are those memories to do? Those memories are fuel for worship. The more God has been patient with us, the more it should lead to praise to him. What did we sing earlier? What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friends, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, but beloved, we should never presume on those mercies. We should not willingly continue in sin thinking that our hearts will be receptive to God tomorrow. Thomas Watson once said this, Take heed of abusing this mercy of God. To sin because mercy abounds is the devil's logic. He that sins because of God's mercy shall have judgment without mercy. Back to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah here heeds the warning. He stops running. He sees that God has given him a second chance. Jonah gets his animal taxi ride from Joppa to Nineveh, which takes about 550 miles northeast to his destination. Because of its size and population density, Jonah spends more time there, probably about three days' worth of itinerant preaching in various spots in the city. Verse 3 mentions And as he's arrived, where the people have gathered around him, he begins reeling back and delivering the message God gave him to speak. Verse 4, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here it is. Jonah's made it exactly where he should have been a long time ago. And he's telling these people he's never met. These are not Jews, by the way. They're Gentiles. This is enemy territory. He's telling these mobs of people, hundreds of thousands of people, that the just anger of God in judgment is coming upon every person in this country. He says to them, your sins are exceedingly evil in the eyes of Yahweh. You have rebelled. You have ignored him. And you do not worship the God who's given you life. This wasn't exactly the sermon you would ordinarily preach in your view of a call sermon. But this was the message the Lord gave him. So how did these hostile, bloodthirsty, idol-worshipping, arrogant Ninevites respond to this knucklehead, rebellious, and stubborn prophet? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. Friends, those, those few words, did that just go in one ear and out the other? They believed God like Abraham did in Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and it was reckoned to him, Righteousness like many of us have, who have turned from our sins to God and trusted in the Savior he has sent in his Son, we too have believed God. And those who believed God were not just a handful of random curious folks that showed up that day to a really fire and brimstone kind of sermon and just kind of went on with life. No, the text says a citywide fast took place The ancient custom of sackcloth and ashes was also accompanied with the fast. This spiritual discipline and practice was an outward way of showing what God had done inwardly in their hearts. This citywide fast began to touch the masses too. It says in the text, verse 5, from the greatest of them to the least of them. That means everybody that gathered that day was struck and cut and broken to the heart. Everybody. Kids. Parents. Parents. Even the animals. I mean, Brody, my lab, would have had sackcloth and ashes on. Or Michael's sheep and chickens and barling. I mean, everyone is expressing their utter dependence on the God who's given them life. The word had begun to penetrate the hearts all the way to the point of convicting the king's heart. Verse 6. This king stood up. He was so moved, so broken, that he used his authority for good and told everyone under his regime to repent, to bow, and to cry out for God to have mercy. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Friends, we should pray big prayers because our big God can turn the hearts of the most mighty king on this earth quicker than you and I can turn a corner in our car. The king made a decree, he made a law, he set it in motion, and everyone from top to bottom, east to west, everybody, we might say, began calling mightily upon God. This king said, Ninevites, turn from your murdering, turn from your violence. Turn from your greed. Turn from your godlessness. Turn from your sexual perversion. Turn from your immoral defilement. Turn from your materialism. Turn from exploiting the poor. Turn from your idols. Turn from your debauchery. Turn from your dead and demonic religion. Turn your backs on it all and call mightily on God for mercy. In many ways, friends, this is exactly what our nation needs to do right now. The mantra that America needs to wave right now is not make America great again. It's that Christians would stand up and preach the gospel so that God can teach us what it means to be born again. Pray for a righteous president. Pray for a righteous governor. Pray for a righteous mayor. Use your clout and influence for good to promote the welfare of people made in God's image. But next year, when that presidential election comes up, this church will not split and divide over politics because King Jesus is Lord over whoever reigns in that Oval Office. And the king of the Ninevites was a pagan, idolatrous, wicked man whose heart had turned to his God. So brothers and sisters, as we head into next year's election cycle to prepare you in advance, our hearts should be first set on this, our God reigns over all nations. Jesus Christ is Messiah over the entire world. Pray that God would be merciful to us, not simply to give us a righteous and God-fearing president, but pray that churches would experience revival and that revival would break out in very unlikely places, maybe even like Fort Smith, Arkansas. May God give us the great privilege to be one instrument he can use to influence for good, maybe an entire state for the glory of God. Here in chapter 3, we see something quite amazing, right? We see Jonah do what God commanded. He preached the message God told him to preach. And we see the Ninevites, including their king, take heed to the Lord's message through Jonah. They humbled themselves and looked to God for mercy. But how did God respond What did he do? Keep in mind now, the book opened up with the Ninevites' evil was before the eyes of the Lord. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Do you see what's going on in the book of Jonah so far? God has shown amazing patience and forbearance with Jonah, and he gave him a second chance. Instead of giving Jonah judgment, God showed Jonah mercy. And now God was also showing mercy his amazing patience and forbearance to hordes and hordes of people living in Assyria, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them who had committed horrific acts, acts that are too shameful to even speak about in mixed company, blasphemous, inhumane, demonic acts of evil. God had seen their evil for years and years and years and instead of crushing them under the weight of his just and fierce anger, he showed the Ninevites Mercy. The book of Jonah is God's monsoon of mercy being poured out on everyone who deserves judgment. From the storm to the sailors to the fish of chapters 1 and 2, we see now the hearts of wicked men now worshiping the one true God. We see a disobedient prophet now obeying his God and God is getting his work done. Friends, that's only something God can do. There's only one that can control the weather, can control animals, can control prophets, can control nations, can control kings, can control anyone he wants and that is the God who created this world. God is able to work powerfully in and through the most unlikely of people. And he continues to do that even today so that he gets all the glory. He used Jonah. I mean, kids, make it a goal this year to do well in school. Look at Jonah. He didn't exactly get an A. On his report card. His parents were yelling in the background, D for diploma, Jonah. He did awful in school, in the prophet school, that is, and yet God gave him a do-over. You totally failed the class, and yet he's given him a second chance, and God still used him. In his infinite yet mysterious wisdom God used a rebel of all people to start the first flames of revival. Friends, God's word, when it is boldly and unapologetically proclaimed, it will never return void. God will always watch over his word to accomplish the purpose it was sent. Members of CCBC pray that we would never grow tired or bored with God's word. It's living and active. It reads us better than we will ever read it. Pray that we would never take for granted the treasure we hold in our hands. It's more precious than gold or silver. Pray that we would not take lightly the precious gift of hearing his word preached and taught week in and week out. Friends, it's the words of life and it's joy for our soul. Friends, pray that we would never also underestimate how God can use any one of us to spread the seed of his word and see many lives changed the power is not in the sower the power is in the seed we just spread the seed the seed of the word friends god's word is not like a tennis ball that we can just easily bat away no god's word is like a heat seeking missile that will not divert from its commander in chief of the universe's designated target Jonah initially tried to bat away his word. He tried to swat it away. He tried to dip, duck, and dodge the word of the Lord that came to him. But through all his running, all his traveling, all his spending of God's money, and packing his bags, paying the fare, putting the flower necklace on, hiding down in the innermost secret part of the ship, and trying to sleep away his troubles, God would not let him off the hook. And friends, God will not let us off the hook either. He loves us too much to ruin our lives. You see, the mark of a good sermon is not how it makes you and I feel on Sunday morning. You know, the kind of the emotional barometer. That was a good sermon because I felt really good about it. Or that was a boring sermon because I almost fell asleep. Friends, our emotions are fickle. The mark of a good sermon is that it chases us all week. It pursues us all month, maybe even all year until God accomplishes through that preach word what he intended to do in us. Friends, God had a long leash on Jonah's life, but Jonah eventually ran out of slack in the leash. And what happened when he stopped running? Unlike me, Jonah preached an eight word sermon Think about that. An eight-word sermon and revival broke out over a city-wide and even nationwide level. Friend, seeing the king of Nineveh repent should lead us to pray for leaders in our own country. It should also challenge us to pray for leaders of other countries too. Even harsh, hostile countries that hate Christianity. China in many ways, Russia, North Korea. God cares about the people living in those countries. His wrath is coming upon the world and it's already here being revealed. But our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We should pray for churches, pray for missionaries that are in hostile countries, that God would use them as vessels of mercy before it's too late. A God delights in opening doors that no man can open, so that he gets all the glory. And it's a shocking parallel we see there between verses five, right? A warrant of warning about judgment in verse four, and then verse five, they believed God. Friends, we live in a day where people say, Hey, I don't need all that hellfire and brimstone preaching. That's that's from a different era. I just need a little self esteem boost to help me get through the week. I don't need to hear about sin, repentance, or judgment. I recently asked a woman, what's your pastor preaching through these days at your church? Her answer, my pastor has asked the congregation to give us, to give him our favorite Bible verses to him, and he'd preach those. I'm sure his intentions were in a good place i'm sure he meant well by asking the congregation to share their favorite bible verses with him to preach but the bible teaches us that we need more than our favorite bible verses We need the whole counsel of God because nobody wants to hear sermons preached that touch on sore spots really hard. Friends, what did we say earlier that Jackson led us in the Baptist catechism? What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in that which is to come. Friends, we need to hear Bible verses that talk about that even though they might not be our favorite. Sadly, many preachers today worry about not being offensive to people more than they do worrying about being faithful to God. May that never be said of us, friends. As John Owen once said, that word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our hearts. Friends, pray for anyone who stands in this pulpit that it would first affect him, including me, before I proclaim it to you. God had a plan for Jonah. God had a plan for the Ninevites. No one can thwart God's plans in this world. Friends, that means plans for your life too. That's plans for this church's life as well. That's plans for your kid's life and your grandkids' lives. No man can thwart God's plans for their life. God has the whole world at his disposal. That's why the entire Bible screams the same consistent theme. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Nothing is too hard for him. But now that Jonah had finished his job, he kind of punched his ticket. He did what the Lord told him to do. Well, how did Jonah respond? to this mercy God had given the Ninevites. Let's look at chapter 4 together. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the word of the Lord appointed and also much cattle? Well, that is a strange way to end the book, right? That's what happens when you preach verse by verse through books of the Bible and you don't dip dodge and try to just give your favorite Bible verses. What you gonna do with that pastor? Let's see. Friends, the book of Jonah has been screaming from chapter one the same message to chapter four. There is a glaring disconnect between this prophet of God, and the God who mercifully kept him. We see a happy ending for the Ninevites, but we're left scratching our heads looking at an unhappy prophet. In verse one, verse four, and verse nine, we find that Jonah is seething with anger. I mean, juggler vein kind of anger. He's not happy. He's not excited. He's not praising God. He's not joining the angelic choir. He is not glad that God has shown mercy to them. No, to our shock and dismay, this once running and rebellious prophet whom God had shown mercy to time and time again, listen to this. He was outwardly obedient to God, but inwardly he was a very angry Man, oh friends, now we're seeing something a little different than maybe we set out for. Why would Jonah try to run and flee from the presence of a omnipresent God? Was it because he was afraid of the Ninevites? Was it because God wasn't clear with the message? Was it because God's word was not sufficient? to change hearts? No, the primary reason for Jonah's rebellious actions is that his motives and the intentions of his heart was filled with anger, filled with fury, filled with rage. He was angry, the text says in verse two, because he knew, he was confident, His theology was orthodox. He knew that God would show the Ninevites mercy. He knew what Psalm 103, 8 says and Psalm 145 says that the Lord is, what? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That he is gracious and merciful to all who call upon him in faith. He knew the right answers. To life's questions but he did not make the right decisions in the life God gave him but why on earth would Jonah be angry towards God for showing sinners mercy let's keep reading in verse five, Jonathan begrudgingly went and sat on the east side of the city. It's kind of like that picture of a child that didn't get what they want. They're just kind of over in the corner pouting. Just, I'm gonna see what's all right, all right. Yeah, I know, I know God. I know you'll be gracious. But I'm gonna kind of watch and see what happens. Verse six, the Lord once again, supernaturally, shows that he's sovereign over creation, over whales, over weather, and even over a plant. God kindly once again shows Jonah mercy by giving him a little shave for his bald head. I don't know if he was bald or had a mullet. I have no idea. But the bottom line is God was kind. He saw that it was hot. The rays were coming down on his head. It was hot. It was hurting. And the Lord mercifully covered him, protected him to cool him off during the hottest part of the day. And then all of a sudden, Jonah went from being angry and mad to exceedingly glad, verse 6 says. He went from Debbie Downer to a happy camper. But God was not done teaching Jonah a lesson. Like he did with the fish in Jonah chapter 2, God now would cause a worm to destroy the plant that he so loved. Verse 7, and in killing the plant, the shade was removed. And to make matters more painful, the Lord brought forth an Arkansas summer heat wave upon him so that it caused him to experience fatigue and weariness. What is God doing to Jonah? He's bringing him low once again. Jonah did not learn his lesson in the belly of the fish, and now God is teaching him again. You need me, Jonah You need me, Jonah, more than the Ninevites need me. You know the truth about me, and yet you still live as if you do not know me. And then, Jonah is so angry. He's brought to a place of despair, and he asks the Lord twice, Just take my life. I know you can. Kill me. Rid me of this pain. Rid me of my misery. Rid me of this anger. Rid me of this miserable plight on my life. Then in verses 10 and 11, the Lord draws out the ironic lesson he's aiming to convey to this rebellious and angry prophet. God calls Jonah on the carpet and he raises Jonah a question. The Lord brings up the most obvious thing that we're seeing now in the text. Jonah had compassion and pity and mercy towards a created thing like a plant, which he did not create and could not destroy. But he would not show mercy, compassion, and pity to human beings made in God's image. Sinners made in the image of God, just like Jonah. Beloved, what is the 18-inch heart disease that Jonah had? It's the same 18-inch heart disease that many of us have. Robert Murray Mishane said, Thy seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. Jonah's theology was sound, but Jonah's heart was sick. Two sins are brought to the surface that reveal why he rebelled against the Lord. And if you are taking notes, here they are. Jonah was self-righteous, and Jonah was full of self-pity. Jonah was self-righteous, and Jonah was full of self-pity. Friends, he was full of himself. And because of that, he was self-deceived and forgetful of God's mercy in his own life. What does it mean to be self-righteous? It means to find your intrinsic worth by what you do or don't do for God. It's performance-based. Self-righteousness is also when we try to find our intrinsic worth by how we compare to other people. The standard is how we fare up to others instead of comparing the standard, which is God. It's works-based rather than based off God's mercy to us. It's being man-centered in our thoughts rather than Christ-centered in our affections. Self-righteous people and people who are full of self-pity are prideful people. They are quick to point out the sin in others. They are harsh in their tone. They are great in holding grudges and demand to be heard and are typically very bad listeners. Self-righteous people are impatient when inconvenienced by the needs and sins of others. Self-righteous people forget how much they need God's mercy as much as the next person does. Jay Schuyler once said, those who forget their need of mercy are the quickest to withhold it from others. Those who forget their experience of God's forgiveness are the quickest to refuse it to others. Jonah knew that God was gracious and merciful. He just didn't think the Ninevites deserved it. Friends, do you find yourself slow to show mercy to someone in your life today? Do you find yourself impatient and irritated when certain people don't meet your expected expectations? Do you find yourself accusing and blaming others rather than praying for them? Do you find yourself quickly criticizing others, criminalizing their motives, and having little to no compassion for them? Beloved, never forget this. Jesus gave the most scathing rebuke to the Pharisees, warned them of judgment coming on Jerusalem, called them twofold sons of hell. And Luke 19 verse 41 says, as Jesus drew near to the city, the city who rejected him, the city who crucified him, the city that mocked him and scoffed him, the text says he wept over the city. Friends, you know what God is doing in our hearts? It's the same thing he was doing in Jonah's. Self-righteous people are quick to run to judgment and rebuke, but often don't have mercy extended to those who need it. Jonah was angry, He was self-righteous. He cared about his own country, his own ethnicity, and not about the nations. But friends, this is why Jesus came. He came as the promised seed of Abraham's offspring. Through Christ would God bless the nations. Jesus, according to Galatians 3.16, is the promised seed. And through him and all who trust in him would be a blessing to the nations with the message of mercy and hope through the gospel. You see, Jonah is a microcosm of what was going on in Israel at the time. Jonah is really a product of his culture, a product of the wayward, religious, self-righteous Israelites, the same self-righteous Jews that rejected Jesus, that rejected the apostle Paul, and that God said, I am now taking my gospel, my good news, to the Gentiles. Friends, why is that good news? We are Gentiles. God had shown mercy to the nations. A people that were not his people have now, by the blood of Christ, become his people. Beloved, we are those who have reason to rejoice in the mercy of Christ. Whether we are self righteous Jonah or pagan and rebellious Nineveh, we all need the same mercy. Friend, self righteousness is so subtle. Tim Keller put it this way if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we are misreading it, we are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. But Jonah was not only self-righteous, he was full of self-pity. You know what self-pity is, right? Sulking, pouting, especially when things don't go our way. We're angry and jealous when God has blessed someone else that we think doesn't deserve those blessings. We sit silently irritable with people who don't affirm us, don't notice us, don't applause us. We look at our suffering and our difficulties with a woe is me mentality like Jonah did. Our problems are the only problems that matters. We lack sympathy, we lack compassion, we lack pity because we're having a pity party and we want everyone to be invited to our Self-love. Friends, the problem with Jonah, it's the same problem with us. We love ourselves more than we love God. We try to find our self-worth by how we measure up to others rather than marveling at the mercy of God that has been shown to us through Christ. Do you realize that Jesus died on the cross for self-righteousness? He died for it and to free us from it. And he even died for that subtle pride of self-pity to teach us humility and caring about others, even over ourselves. Friends, the book of Jonah is also teaching us something about the mission of God. We've learned something about the character of God. God is just and judgment day is coming, but mercy is extended if we turn to faith in Christ we also learn something about his mission. Why is it that Jonah was selected out of all these prophets to go to a very hard place, to a very unwanted place, a very kind of overlooked place on the mission trips for Israelite prophets? Friends, it's the same reason why God puts us in the families he does. In the churches that he does, the communities we live in, the state we live in, the countries we live in, he puts us into people's lives that are the hardest to love so that others might see Christ and his mercy in us. I close with this very challenging and encouraging quote from David Pallison. He said, with a world of wrongs in his face, Jesus is patient. He forgives at personal cost. He goes about the business of practical generosity, meeting the exact points of human need, and he pointedly confronts people. Who are you living for? How are you living? Then in mercy, he bears the very anger that our answers deserve. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never portray Jesus as a static ideal of remote humanoid perfection, as some calm, cool, and collected Hindu guru or cognitive therapist offering to help you become more serene. That Jesus on their pages takes people, people like you and me, and says, come and learn from me because the thing he was best at is the thing we find hardest to do the book of jonah leaves us with a challenging question in view of god's mercy will we follow in the footsteps of jonah or will we follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Will we hold on to our self-righteousness and wallow in self-pity, or will we humble ourselves before God and marvel at his mercy to us through Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we praise you for your glorious grace. Your mercy is truly greater than anything we could ever offer up to you. Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to be pricked and challenged and convicted, thinking through self-righteousness and self-pity and how they they are a disdain in your eyes. Lord, we pray that we would be warned by what we've seen in Jonah's life, as you care about people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Lord, even people living in this community that we have a difficult time loving. Lord, we pray that your mercy would soften the frozenness of our hearts, that we might extend it to others. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.